Well, good morning. Would you please join me as I pray? Father, we are here with anticipation. We are a people who believe you to be a speaking God. So we gather and we lift our songs to you. We sit under your word. We come to feast at the table that you have set for us in hopes that as we go on this journey, you would renew us and make us whole. You'd speak to your children, challenging and transforming us. I'm praying particularly this morning, God, that we would not shy away from the word where it challenges, where it is shocking, where it seeks to wake slumbering souls. I pray, God, that we would hear it with fresh ears and that every man and woman in this room would be awake to your glory, that we would be glad to submit the whole of our lives to you and to go wherever you would lead, that we would experience real assurance in our souls men and women in this room would know your love and be convinced and settled that they are safe, hidden away in the heart of Jesus. So would you help us? Would you lead us into that place of experiencing the assurance that you've purchased for us in Jesus? Let it be true. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the early 1950s, right, kind of at the dawn of the Cold War, the threat of nuclear war Uh, the Chrysler car company began to repurpose some of their production and they they actually started to create the world's most powerful air raid siren. Still to date, there's been nothing that's been produced like the Chrysler air raid siren. That's a Hemi engine there. Good old Chrysler Hemi engine that would pump into that thing. Once they got it turned on and got the engine revving, it would produce 138 decibels. That's about the same sound as a jet taking off if you're standing right under it. And it could be heard from 25 miles away. So these were produced and put in major cities across the United States, not to generate fear, not to create unrest in people, but to create assurance and safety for the population at large, they were in a sense saying there is a very real threat, but we are on guard against it. And this is going to serve to make sure that you don't sleep through something that is very dangerous for you, that it will awaken you and help you to prepare for it. And so the air raid sirens were positioned around the country, not to generate fear, but to protect the people. And as we as a community have been studying through the book of Hebrews, this this interesting kind of sermon-esque letter written by a preacher whose name we're not sure of, but is writing to a community that he loves and he's helping secure in their minds this idea that Jesus is better than anyone or anything else that you might be tempted to place your trust in. He's been on this journey trying to help understand and express this reality that Jesus is better and he comes to this portion in his sermon letter and what he's going to do in a sense is he's going to rev up the Chrysler air raid siren. He's going to rev the engine as we work through this text until it gets to its full 138 decibels because he wants to make sure that if any in the community are are sleeping through the beauty and the power of this good news that Jesus is better, that they will be awakened even if startlingly so. He's not, I believe, I don't believe the author is trying to generate fear in the hearts of his reader and he's gonna say as much by the time we get to the conclusion 
It's not that he's trying to create unrest. He is, in a sense, recognizing that some in the community might be playing some dangerous religious games with God. They might be respectably religious, but keeping the living presence of God at arm's length in such a way that leaves them at risk, leaves them at risk of being perpetually immature and maybe even more dangerously being carried away from the presence of God altogether. And because he has the concern of a good pastor, he is going to fire up the siren and say, beware. So, Fair warning at the outset of studying a text like this, it may feel like the air raid is going off. There may be times where we're tempted to draw back and go, ooh, that's, <laughs> that's strong. This is intentional and it's born out of the love of a good pastor that's saying, I don't want my people to fall asleep on what God has for them. This is the tone of our text here today. And ultimately the content, what he's going to say is he wants, to, he wants us to be a sort of people that live fully assured, fully assured of what God has done, not wondering, not, not waffling back and forth, but fully secure in what God has done. And he, the way that he wants to secure that for us, he's, he's going to invite us to flee slothful immaturity to flee immaturity and to pursue a promise-driven maturity. We're gonna see if we can make sense of that together in this text. Okay, the engine starts to rev up right from the beginning as he announces the presenting issue. As the siren starts to warm up, he, he introduces it in chapter five, verse 11, telling them, here's the problem. Here's the issue that I'm going to address head on with you. He says, you've become lazy listeners. You're slothful in the way that you listen to the word of God. Let me, let me read it to you. I want you to hear how he says it in verse 11 of chapter five. About this, we have much to say. Now, the this there is something we're gonna have to wait one more week for. It's what we were touching on last week. It's this idea of Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He introduced this idea in the last chapter. He's talking about it briefly in this chapter and then all of next week is about this idea. So he's saying, I've got a lot to say about this, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The word for dull there literally means slothful or lazy. That when you listen, you listen for the things that are a pat on the back and encouragement, but anything that has a demand for you or that steps on your toes or that calls you to come with me on a journey, he says you immediately shut down because you're lazy listeners. Now he's coming right out of the gates and saying some challenging things to these people. He's doing it because he loves them and he's worried about the outcome of a journey that is engaged in lazy listening. In part, the, the image in my mind that's kind of silly, but it's been helpful for me as I think about this is that Zillow commercial, maybe you've seen it, where, where the woman's trying to decide whether or not to sell her house. And she comes in and there's a long conference table and it's her sitting around the table 30 different times, 30 different versions of herself. And she comes in and she says, here's the plan. We're gonna sell this house. We're gonna buy this house. Okay, me, what do you think? And she says, antisocial me, what do you think? And antisocial me slowly turns in her chair away from her. And then she says, you know, anxious me, what do you think? And she's like wrestling with and breaking pencils. And then she turns and she says, lazy me, what do you think? And she's sitting at the end of the table and she goes, blah. 
I've been thinking, like he's addressing a community and he's saying, beware, lazy me is active. Lazy me is exerting influence right now. That when you're reading God's word and you're engaging with him in community, there's these moments where if you think this might cost you too much, like this journey with Jesus might have implications in the areas of of your sex life, your money, your pursuit of power, certain areas where you just think, yes, I'm in with Jesus, but I'm kind of keeping him at arm's length here. He's going, no, no, right there where you kind of, you go, I'm not going there, I don't, I don't want that. He said, that lazy listening, that, that kind of sense of, I don't want to really go on a journey where God is leading me. He says, listen, this is very dangerous territory. Playing religious games with God where you give him a tip of the hat and you hang out in Christian community, but you're unwilling to submit to him and go on the journey with him. He says it's very dangerous. And it's dangerous for two reasons that he's gonna explain in this text. Two reasons, two, two risks that are baked in to interacting with God and his word in this way. The first is this. If you interact with God in this way, you will never graduate beyond the elementary things. It will prevent you from growing beyond the basics. Right on the heels of this warning, he paints a picture that is intended to be nearly kind of humorous. He's he's poking at it. He's He's saying, imagine for instance, that you go to a friend's house for dinner that tonight, Sunday night, you, you get invited to some friend's house for dinner. He says, imagine you go and you sit down at their dinner table and they, they stretch out across the table, one after another, all of these baby bottles. And this family, mom, dad, kids, they all grab their baby bottle and they start going How about that bank crisis? What do you think's gonna happen with those banks, huh? He's like, at some point, as a guest in this house, you would go, what's wrong here? This, you guys know this isn't normal, right? Uh, he, he's painting a picture in the following verses saying, your immaturity, if you engage in this sort of listening, is so foolish that it's funny. It's like embarrassing. This is the way he says it. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone else to teach you again the basic principles and the oracles of God. You need milk. You don't need solid food. He's like, you need your baby bottle all over again. He says, uh, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And then in verse one and two of chapter six, he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and instruction about washings or baptism is the literal word there. So instruction about baptism and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So what the author is saying here is this, that you, this community that I love, I'm nervous on your behalf because there should have been growth and maturity by this point, but you're still, you're still stuck on the elementary principles. And in order to sketch out this, this milk that they're still eating on, the elementary principles, he names six things, they come in three pairs. And in essence, what he's saying is if, if the sum total of your journey with Jesus is about being forgiven of sin, the first pair, Connecting publicly to a church, the second pair, 
He said training about washings and the laying on of hands, being connected with the church. And the third pair has to do with a one day salvation, the judgment that's coming and the resurrection that's coming. If your journey with Jesus is just about being forgiven of your sin, connecting publicly with the church, and one day being whisked away to heaven, he's saying, you haven't graduated past the foundation. Now, he's not saying the foundation isn't important. We know that the foundation of a house is incredibly important. But if you're building a house and as soon as the foundation is done, you say, that's it. I'm gonna go live out there in my house, but you have no walls and no roof. He's going, this is, this is folly. It's important, but it's not finished. In essence, what he's saying is if your journey with Jesus, it's just about securing your, your forgiveness and knowing that one day you're gonna be with him. He's going, you've missed the power and the beauty, the living experience of what he has purchased for you. You see, when he's calling them to meat away from milk, he's not calling them to theological precision. It's not that he wants all of them to be systematic theologians. And the reason that I can make that statement is because right in the middle of it, in verse 14, he tells them the alternative. He's saying, here's what you're missing. He says, solid food is for the mature, for, and then he's gonna describe who, who are these people. He says, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's saying you're never graduating beyond just experiencing, okay, yes, I'm washed by Jesus, but he's saying, listen, Jesus is willing to walk with you every moment throughout life. What you're not doing is developing a constant practice of discerning each moment. What's good here? Like the presence of God walking with you through life such that in every interaction with your spouse or your roommate or your coworkers, such that in everything that you're thinking about and engaging, you're, you're constantly practicing going, God, what do you have for me in this moment? What's good right now? He's saying the mature are living their lives out in such a way that they believe God is present and active and available and engaged in real union with them every moment. He's going, what sadness that you think Jesus came to earth, died to pay for your sins, resurrected to conquer death, all so that you could kind of tip a hat at church and get on with life as usual. He's going, if you're doing that, you're still sucking on the baby bottle and you're in danger. I've walked with friends like this over the years that have ordered their lives in this way and what I found is that oftentimes it, it seems like in their heart and mind, they're doing more for God than he's done for them. You know, it's the sort of person that's like, they feel like God should be so grateful that they showed up at church once a week and they even gave a gift occasionally and the offering. Like, God, you're indebted to me, right? You should pat me on the back. Like this is, and, and it's as if he's writing a letter to the community and he's starting to rev up the air raid siren and going, listen, if you think that's what it's all about, beware. You're missing the value, the beauty, the present tangible expression of what God has for you. He says, you're never gonna graduate to maturity if that's what you're thinking. But then he names the second risk and the second risk is even more dire than the first. This is where the engine is now, the Hemi engine is fully pumping and the air raid siren hits 138 decibels. It's in verse three through eight of chapter six where he's saying the second risk is this, not just that you don't graduate beyond your immaturity. 
the real risk is this, that you will hopelessly fall away from the presence of God. I'm gonna read these words and I need you to hear them as the siren call that they are. They're shocking. They're meant to wake slumbering souls. Hear them fresh with me, starting in verse three. He says, this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible. Ooh, that is a, that is a, a heavy word in this sentence. He says, it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns, It is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Do you hear it? Do you hear the loud wail of this text? What he's saying is, if you perpetually play religious games with God while keeping real repentance at arm's length, you are in danger of being carried away completely. I was meditating on this text this week and thinking towards this moment of standing, looking across this pulpit at you. I felt the weight of reading these words to you. He's he's willing to blast the siren because as a pastor, he's concerned for the hearts of the people entrusted to him. He's going, I don't want you to miss what God has purchased for you and it's possible that you might. A text like this raises all sorts of questions and they might be the sort of questions that are bubbling up in your mind and heart right now. A question like, can I lose my salvation? Is that what this text is saying? That someone, it says, can have this experience of the Holy Spirit or have an experience of the power of the word of God in the world to come, but then they can actually be in a spot where it's impossible for them to be restored to the presence of God. What does this mean? I think it's important to note uh, that this, this question can and should be viewed from two sides, from a divine perspective and a human perspective. And in order to help us engage in this idea, I just wanna share a, a few thoughts from a, a man named Andrew Murray in his book, The Holiest of All. And in a sense, he's trying to help us not blunt the, the weight, the force of a text like this while putting it in its right theological context. What we need to understand is this, that from God's perspective, there is no such thing as someone losing their salvation. When God calls someone to himself, in John chapter 10, Jesus the good shepherd says, all that the Father has given me will be kept until the end. I will not lose one of them. Jesus the good shepherd will fight for his own sheep and will protect them. They will be preserved to the end. But as Andrew Murray says, every truth has two sides. And this is the way he expressed it. The only way to apprehend the truth fully is to look at each side as if it were the whole and to yield ourselves to its full force. There is a human side to this discussion also. 
Scripture speaks most solemn words of warning in regards to the possibility of receiving the grace of God in vain, of beginning well and then falling away. It is possible to have the emotions touched and the will affected without the heart being truly renewed. The gifts of the Spirit might be received without His graces. The joy of light in the mind may be mistaken for life in the soul. And so some who were counted true believers by man may fall away beyond the hope of renewal. I believe that, that Murray is making clear what this text is saying. I'm, I'm not like this old, wizened pastor by any means, but I have, I have walked with people for years. And I have some dear friends that were a part of the community of faith and professed things with their mouth and carried it out in certain ways that today want nothing to do with the Lord. And when, when we're situated in a spot where we, we see that happen, we go, well, what category does that fit in? And I think what the scriptures are saying here is this, that if those people are in fact God's own, by the end of the book of Hebrews, what we're gonna hear is this, is that he disciplines his own, that at some point between now and glory, the Father is going to discipline that person through circumstances, through his presence, through his word, in such a way that he draws their heart back, and the end game will reveal to us, yes, in fact, that person had real salvation because it endured to the end. But for some, what this text is saying is they will never come back. And what that reveals is that even though they experienced some measure of the spirit in the community, they were never truly born again. They were just playing religious games. It's kind of like a Judas Iscariot sort of scenario. They were close to Jesus, but they were not rooted in Jesus. So when I stand and prayerfully proclaim the word of God to a room this size, what I need to say to you is, I don't know which you are. I don't know. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. I don't, I don't know. What I do know is this. Today, while you have time, while God is speaking clearly, listen, and don't listen with a dull ear, with a lazy ear. Listen urgently, knowing that he's speaking and he's calling to you and saying, right now, today, you can have real, vibrant union with me. And if you continue to keep me at arm's length, what will happen is you will either never graduate out of your immaturity or even more dangerously, when a storm arises, when things get difficult, when things start to fall apart, this thin, flimsy expression of your Christianity that you've been clinging to will all of a sudden not suffice anymore. And you will say, what am I doing? I'm moving on. So he's inviting us before the storm comes to consider, what do we do with this sort of warning? How are we to respond? And it's right at this point where he turns a corner and you can feel the heart of this pastor that this is not a siren that he's blasting to generate fear. That's not his intention. He wants to awaken slumbering souls and then he wants to deliver real assurance, real confidence right into the souls of the people that he loves. And the way that we know that is the way that he turns the corner in verse nine. 
right after the full decibel blast of this text hits, he then turns the corner and this is what he says. Look in verse nine with me. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. What a well-placed beloved. He's going, my cherished ones. Listen, in your case, we feel sure of better things. And might I just say, Seven Mile Road, to the men and women I'm walking with, I feel the exact same way. Beloved, I feel sure of better things for you. He says this, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints and that you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He just stated his desire. My desire for you, the reason I'm doing this is so that you would be fully assured of your hope. You would be totally confident that you are secure in the love of Jesus now and eternally more. And he says, so that you may not be sluggish. That's the same word as he used earlier when he said dull of hearing. It got translated in two different ways, but it's the same word. It means lazy or slothful. He says, I don't want you to be slothful anymore. Um, That ultimately he's painting this picture of the urgency in this moment needs to be for the assurance that is available. He's He's saying, sound the alarm so that this is not your story that you would not be sluggish, but you would be eager and urgent to establish assurance. And then just after awakening his people and saying the assurance of hope is available to you, which incidentally, friends, it's available to you. Confidence and rootedness in Jesus, such that you are assured of his hope in your life is available to you. And then he says, here's two responses. That You could be dull of hearing and there were these two risks that flow from it. Or you could be urgent to lay hold of assurance of hope. And he says, and here's two responses that if you step into these, they will secure the assurance of your soul. This is is what he expresses. Two responses that will allow us to lay hold of assurance of hope, of real maturity. The first is this. The first proper response to a word like this is he says, imitate the faith of those who have patiently waited on God. Imitate the faith of those who've patiently waited on God. He starts in verse 12b and he says it like this. He says, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, imitate those that have patiently waited on the promises of God and then he grounds it in verse 13 by pointing back at Abraham. He says, for God made a promise to Abraham, and he goes on, I'll I'll just summarize for us, he's pointing back to Genesis chapter 22, and what he's saying is, God made a promise to Abraham, and he swore by himself. He said there was nothing greater for God to promise on than himself, so he said, I swear by me, I will deliver for you. And the promise that he was making to Abraham is that he would, in fact, have this promised child with Sarah. Do you know how long it was from the time God made that promise until it was fulfilled in Abraham's life? About 25 years. 25 years as he's waiting and walking. And and how did he do along the way? Nah. Some days better than others. He didn't nail it. He and Sarah had some poor plans with Hagar. They did some things they shouldn't have done. Like, it wasn't a straight shot. But through 25 years, as he continued to hear the voice of God, and he continued to wrestle, and he continued to 
lay anchor to the hope and the promises that God was making as he continued to lay hold of it. In time, God delivered. And then there's this beautiful thing that happened. For a man that patiently walked with God, not perfectly, but over time, and God delivered. About 13 years later, do you remember what God did to him? He came and he said, hey, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. You to slaughter your son. Which if ever there was a moment in Abraham's story where God seemed monstrous, it was here. God has commanded to his people, don't engage in child sacrifice. This goes against his character. Everything about it is broken. If ever there were a storm that blew into Abraham's life, it was in this moment where everything that he thought he knew about God is on the chopping block, but there's something different about what has happened in him at this point. Do you know what he does? The very next morning, he wakes up and he goes to obey this difficult word from God. It's almost as if this old man who has walked patiently with God and seen him deliver on his promises, I think he kind of looked at the situation and went, "Ah, resurrection. Like I know the God that brings life out of dead places and if he's made promises about what he's gonna do with this boy and if he ends up dying on the altar, he must be resurrecting him from the dead because he's got plans. Abraham's soul had been delivered into this place through patient, faithful endurance that he knew God was walking with him even when God appeared in the moment to be monstrous. You see, the first response to this word, he's saying, imitate the faith of those who've stood the test of time. But then he goes one step deeper and he says, it's not just that. Listen, he's saying, you have the opportunity to have real living union with the presence of Jesus. Set your anchor there. This is how he finishes in verse 19 and 20, and you feel the pastor heart coming to a conclusion. This is why he was willing to sound the siren. He says, we have told this, or pardon me, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We're back to where we started. He's prepared to launch into all the glories of what it means that he's a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. But what he's saying on the front, and all we need to know for our purposes this week is what he's saying is this. Jesus has access to the holiest places of God. Behind the curtain, where only the high priest could go, he went. And he's not a priest in the order of Aaron, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And one of the biggest differences is this, he's eternal. His access into that place is unchanging forever and he has secured it for you. And he's saying this is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul, which the original hearers, they they would have this idea about the anchor that had been a fairly recent development for Greek people that were navigating waterways, that they, they had anchors that were huge stones or piles of rocks that for those that were beginning to go out on the open seas, the given was a storm is coming. It is a given. It's not when, it's if. And so as a result, they had to come up with the idea of of an anchor because the anchor gets thrown over the side and as long as it goes deep enough and it settles into a secure spot and it's heavy enough, it's assurance that we will not drift away in this storm. 
saying, friends, hear me. Jesus is living and he has access to the full presence of God and he will walk with you every moment throughout life. The glories and the beauties of the gospel don't just cleanse your past sin and secure future heaven for you. He's saying you get to live in real, profound, abiding union with Christ who is in the holiest of places. It's yours. He died to purchase it. He is raised again and he is living on your behalf in that place. He says, put the anchor of your soul there. Each morning, if you awake and you set your focus on Jesus and you say, you're with me, you're cleansing me, you're remaking me, and I am going to listen with urgency. You have my full attention and I'm gonna set the weight of my soul on you. What he's saying is, friends, you don't have to live afraid, you get to live fully assured of the hope that is yours. And you get to taste it today as he walks with you. So live fully assured. As you flee this slothful immaturity, this lazy listening, we lay it down and say there's something better. The living Christ is available to us and so we're gonna wait with patience for his promises and walk with him daily and as we do, we experience what it means to be a soul at rest no matter the winds of the storm. Amen? Let me pray for us. just before I pray would you pray and I want to ask specifically for my friends in the room you know who you are because the Holy Spirit is prodding and churning if you've been playing lazy listening games with God not wanting him to reorder your life too much still trying to be in control and Would you just admit it to him right now that you hear the siren? Do you want to run to him? Would you you ask the Holy Spirit for the power, the willingness to do just that? Father, we are weak and needy people, prone to wonder. I thank you that in Jesus we have a true anchor point that behind the veil in the holiest of places we have a secure anchor point, that our souls can rest at ease knowing that all has been accomplished for righteousness sake and we are safe with you. I pray that my brothers and sisters would experience the freedom and the joy and the power of having full assurance of hope in you and that wherever that is unclear, unsecured today, that this alarm bell of this text would awaken us and cause us to cling to Jesus all over again. We love you, we thank you, God. We thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. We rejoice in it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.